All right, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel, chapter 3. Hey, Joan. Hey, Mac. Good to see you guys here today. There's some troopers in here this morning. Some real troopers. Got Mike back there. Had a heart attack on Friday. He's here today. Because that's what you do. Daniel chapter 3. Very familiar story. I want to read the whole chapter. I know it's a little lengthy, but uh, well, we're going to cover everything in it. Because it's a narrative. It tells the story about uh, three exiles that you were familiar with probably since your childhood if you grew up in church. Daniel chapter 3, in honor of God's word, I invite you to stand to your feet if you're able. And let's, uh, let's read the entire 30 verses together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, uh, to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. How many times have we said that? And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music that you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down, worshiped the golden image, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and uh, maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace... 
And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom you serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression his, on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and, they were, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, fell bound to the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, that is true, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together. They saw that the fire had had no power over their bodies. The hair of their head, uh, their hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They didn't even smell of fire. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God that is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that you would uh, take this amazing story. Father, help us to see uh, the relevance, how it speaks to us uh, in our day, in our time. Fathers, we're trying to... Uh, discern from your word what Christian character looks like in your followers. Father, I pray that uh, we will see here from this, this old story new truths. Lord, these, these are truths that we have held on to. Uh, some of us were taught when we were little in Sunday school, but Father, they, uh, this is an adult, uh, an adult word uh, for our time and our day and, and the things that we struggle with. So Father, help us to see ourselves in this story but better yet help us to see you and your glory in this story we ask it in christ's name amen on a hot summer day in july in 1967 
a 17-year-old by the name of by the name of Joni Erickson dove headfirst in the Chesapeake Bay, having misjudged the depth of the water. As she dove in, she hit bottom and she fractured her neck between the fourth and the fifth vertebrae. After that, she was a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. She was paralyzed from her shoulders down. Obviously, that changed her life uh, forever. Joni says that it changed her life for the better. Just a few days ago uh, was the 56th anniversary of her accident, and uh, she referred to that day as the amazing anniversary. The amazing anniversary. But hearing that, I want you to understand that she has never romanticized her handicap or tried to present herself as some kind of, of hero. Now, she openly talks in, in her books and in, in, in her talks uh, of the chronic pain that she has suffered all the way through. Uh, has it not been uh, just an easy, easy road for her at all? She has suffered chronic pain. She has fought cancer, and she fought against COVID uh, that almost took her life. And uh, she laments often to God. She pleaded for years for God to heal her until she finally was resolved that it was his will to leave her as a, as a quadriplegic. In her book, A Place for Healing, she writes, He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Yet she has refused to feel sorry for herself. She started a ministry called uh, Joni and Friends to spread the gospel, especially to other people with uh, disabilities. In fact, this, this picture, uh, not counting the writing, of course, uh, is one that she painted. She was inspired uh, by Van Gogh's Starry Night. Uh, the details here and the, the color is, is amazing. She painted this, uh, of course, with her teeth. And, and so nothing was stopping her to present a life of beauty. She's an inspiration to so many because she exudes an incredible confidence, even in the midst of her suffering, from a wheelchair of the greatness and majesty of God. She wrote this. I want to read this to you. She says, Sometimes when I feel fearful for the future, when I am discouraged and problems overwhelm, my mind starts focusing on worst-case scenarios. It's what I get when my faith turns inward. I start looking down rather than up. Perhaps you do the same. Your problem can so easily become an idol. It's all we focus on, talking about it endlessly, instead of praying about and trusting God's ability to handle it. You and I have to fight, fight to not look down, but to jerk our thoughts upright. We need to remember that our loving Father holds us in His hands, and He is bigger, smarter, more compassionate, and more loving than we could possibly imagine. 
That's why, she says, in my art studio, I keep a little plaque that reads, quote, don't tell God that you have a big problem. Tell your problem that you have a big God. Do you have a problem that's screaming for your undivided attention, insisting that you idolize it? Friend, tell that problem that your God is immeasurably bigger than it is. Declare your situation, Deuteronomy 4.35, the Lord, He is God, there is no other beside Him. Uh, there is, is a word that, uh, well, we just don't use it much anymore in our society that, that describes Joni's outlook on life, and that word is fortitude. Fortitude. So what exactly is fortitude? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Fortitude has a double meaning. Uh, it, it has two different kinds of virtues brought together in, into one. It, it means courage. It means bravery. It means valor. But it also means, at the same time, perseverance, tenacity, and endurance. So it's a combination of two virtues working together simultaneously. Courage and perseverance. Fortitude is courage in the midst of suffering. Fortitude is courage in the furnace. Uh, the great ex example we have, of course, in the, in the scriptures is that of Christ. In fact, Christ is, is the hero of the Bible, and therefore he is the exemplar of every single one of these uh, characteristics or character traits that we're looking at. Uh, his mission, uh, as we are fully aware, was to rescue us from eternal damnation. But he went through hell to accomplish that. Yet the scripture says that his face was set towards Jerusalem. Uh, it, it's it's a, a saying that's used over and over again, which is a great way to describe the word fortitude. It is a determination moving forward in the face of suffering. And even though he was considered all throughout his ministry a fraud by the religious society, he was doubted by his own disciples. In fact, he was betrayed by, by one of them. Uh, he was finally mocked. He was tortured. He was crucified. He remained the entire time resolute to fulfill his mission. That's fortitude. It's fortitude. It is seen in scriptures such as 1 Corinthians 15, 8. This says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or Philippians 3, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's fortitude. Fortitude is seen in the Christ follower who is dying of cancer, but yet refuses to give in to the despair and the doubt and lifts up the name of Jesus till the very end. Fortitude is seen in the Christ follower who calls out for injustice and speaks the truth 
even though by doing so, it's going to cost them. They might lose friends. You might lose a job, an income. Fortitude is seen in the Christ follower who has been hurt in church, hurt by a fellow believer, but has decided to not walk away. That's fortitude. Fortitude is the missionary uh, William Carey who went to India to share the gospel. And upon uh, arriving there in the very first stages of his ministry, he lost his wife. He ended up losing three of his five children to death, all while not seeing a single soul converted for seven years. Would you quit? Now, because of his fortitude, he is called the father of modern missions. Fortitude is facing adversity, temptation, spiritual assault, but to do it with courage. Fortitude is not about gritting our teeth, but about garnering our trust. Because it is a work of grace. It is a work of grace. It is a Holy Spirit-empowered virtue. We don't just kind of work it up. We don't watch, you know, Braveheart and say, oh, you know, I'm going to go do something heroic. It doesn't work like that. It is a movement of the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit can supply it. G.K. Chesterton said this, quote, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms it means a strong desire to live taking the form of the readiness to die. Courage and fortitude have always been considered uh, Christian virtues, virtues of the Christian life. And uh, it occurred to me as I was preparing this message that we actually haven't defined the word virtue. Uh, I assume that people knows, knew what it mean, meant, but in our day you never know. Uh, a virtue is a, is a way of life, it's a characteristic, a way of life, an attitude that basically makes life work, uh, that leads to a life of flourishing. When, when the saints of old spoke of, of living a virtuous life, they were basically saying a, a, a life that works, a life that functions well. A life that leads to joy, a life that leads to flourishing. Now, the saints of old also uh, had what they called the cardinal virtues. Maybe you've heard that term before. The cardinal virtues, and fortitude was one of them. There's only four, and, and, and fortitude is, is one of the four. Now, the word cardinal, uh, I don't want you to think of, you know, the red bird. I want you to think in terms of a hinge. The word cardinal in Latin means a hinge, like a door hinge. Therefore, these are the virtues, there's these four virtues in which uh, life is like a door that swings open into a life of flourishing, but it hinges on things like fortitude. Fortitude. When I, when I think of fortitude, I think of a, a small... Protestant village in the south of France called Les Chambon, who, through the leadership of a pastor that arrived there uh, in the community uh, during World War II, the entire village 
uh, to gather decided that they were going to hide thousands of Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust. The whole village conspired in this, this, uh, this hiding of these Jews. Uh, this village was made up of poor farmers, a lot of them struggling to, to know how to even feed their families, and so they're taking on more people and obviously having to provide for them as well. But not only that, there's a huge risk to their lives to take in Jews and hide them. You would think in that village there might be, you know, somebody who's like, man, this is crazy, I'm going to go rat them all out. Nobody did. Nobody did. And you may think that that kind of thing, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that particular city council meeting. You know, hey, what do you guys think about this idea? Um, and yet, according to Magda Tricome, that's the pastor's wife, was asked about the time when they made the decision. She said this, those of us who received the first Jews did what we thought had to be done. Nothing more complicated than that. It was not decided from one day to the next what we would have to do. There were many people in the village who needed help. How could we refuse them? A person doesn't sit down and say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. No, we had no time for that. We had no time to think. When a problem came, we had to solve it right then and there. Sometimes people ask me, how did you make a decision? There was no decision to be made. The issue was, do you think that these are all brothers or not? Do you think it is unjust to turn in the Jews to the Nazis or not? Then let us help. That's fortitude. That's, that's a character that has been built up in you so that when the time of decisions come, it's not a decision at all. You go, man, we choose courage, even if it's costly. When I think of fortitude... I also think of uh, three young men taken into captivity in Babylon. And man, you can imagine the ridiculous amount of culture shock these three guys faced. And there's actually four if you include Daniel, the namesake of the book. Uh, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we know them better by their Babylonian names, which were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Israel was taken from their homeland, they were exiled out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and taken to Babylon. And, and there was a plan in place set by the king, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, to reprogram Israel's youth. They wanted to take the cream of the crop, the best of the best. They wanted to make them Babylonians. And so they took Israel's finest prospects for the future. Societies have always kind of done that. They've always targeted uh, youth. Hitler did it by forming uh, a Nazi youth uh, movement known as Hitler's Youth. I read about this, pretty fascinating. Hitler banned all youth organizations, including the Boy Scouts. He's like, no, we don't want any competition. And he replaced it with uh, the Nazi youth or the Hitler youth movement, where millions of teenage boys were trained with Nazi propaganda. 
And the goal was to reprogram them. We, call it, we might call it brainwashing, but brainwashing is only half of the process, right? You want to wash away old thoughts and you want to reprogram someone. So it's brainwashing, but it's also brain filling. And that's exactly what's uh, happening or what they're trying to do here in Babylon. So they wanted to change these, these young men. They wanted to change their identities. They wanted to change their beliefs. They wanted to change their way of life. They wanted to change their, their ethnic lineage. They wanted to change their family values. And so the goal is quite simple. First, we confuse the identity. We change their names. And then we will form in them a new identity. Sound familiar? Yet what these young people, these young exiles managed to do under the hand of God was unbelievably miraculous. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 48 and 49, we, we read this. Then the king placed Daniel, that's one of the four, in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here they come, administrators, administrators over the province of Babylon. You kidding me? When Daniel himself remained in the royal court. This is crazy. Uh, these Jews who were under the reprogram uh, administration, the, the, whole, the whole change the, who they are, uh, reality, these Jews have been sovereignly placed by God into positions of leadership in Babylon. And, and so you, you, we might conclude, well then I guess it worked, right? The indoctrination, the reprogramming, it, it must have worked. No, it's not what happened. Not even for a second. And that's made perfectly clear in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, we find that King Nebuchadnezzar's power has gone to his, to his big fat head. Right? He sees himself not just as a king, but as one of the gods. He's concerned that people worship the gods, right? But he wants to be included in that mix. And so he has this ridiculously massive statue built of himself in his own likeness. Now the statue was 90 feet tall. That's uh, approximately a nine-story building. I tried to think of a building to compare it to. I'm not sure we have a nine-story building in Burleson. Anybody know one? No? And, and so he's, if, if he was here, right, he would be the tallest thing around. And the question is, why? Why do you have to have something so stinking big? Right? Well, because he wanted to give people the impression that he was a really big deal. And so we saw over and over and over again that this is all by his hand. He set it up. Nebuchadnezzar set it up. The statue which he set up, the statue that the king set up over and over and over again. The writer of Scripture wants us to make sure that we understand that this is all Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It's his idea. And he wants it really, really big. Right? Statue 90 feet tall. I think he wanted to strike fear in his subjects. I think he, 
he wanted to uh, intimidate with this portrait, this, this statue, this representation of how big he is. So he demanded that everyone in Babylon, from every nation, right? He, he wants all peoples from all the nations, every tongue, language, people, and tribe to sing his praises. And so in verses 4 through 6, then a herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples in every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the, the, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing fire. Now, what happens next in the story is a lesson in the foundations on which Christian fortitude is, is built. Uh, I want to show you uh, out of the story, out of our text, three, three different foundations for building Christian fortitude. And, and one day... I think all of us will be faced with a decision or some circumstance that requires fortitude, supernatural fortitude. And if you don't have these foundations in place, then when all of this pressure to conform comes upon you, you will fold like a wet blanket. So what are they? Three foundations. Three foundations of Christian fortitude. Foundation number one, foundation one, Christ is life. Christ is life. How will we find courage and endure suffering when we love comfort or money or status or human applause or acceptance as our greatest treasure? The answer is we will not. We will not. I want you to recall the level of worldly success that these Hebrew exiles were now enjoying. Right? They had excelled at Babylon U. They had graduated in the top of their class. We know that they're also physically stronger and healthier. They just looked look healthier and stronger than, than all of the sons of Babylon. They quickly climbed the ladder of success to the corner office on the top floor. Uh, they were wealthy beyond anything they could ever have imagined back in Israel. The passage says uh, the, that they were given gift after gift from the king. They were prototypes, I believe, of the rich young ruler that Jesus dealt with who decided to walk away from Jesus. The passage says, because he had great possessions. Well, that's them. But there's one thing that Nebuchadnezzar didn't account for, that these three, four if we're including Daniel, had already tasted that the Lord is good. They've already tasted. And nothing that they had gained in Babylon compared to the all-sufficiency 
of knowing God. And so when the music played and, you know, just over and over again, names every single instrument, the masses, the masses of people, all of these leaders, you know, all of these prestigious titles listed over and over again, uh, they all fall down before this statue. So just to picture this scene, right, just a sea of people, everybody goes face down, three guys stay standing. That's fortitude. They had their face set towards Jerusalem. They knew the cost would be high. They knew that they were risking everything. But they said, man, our God's worth it. Our God's worth it. We're not bowing. They stood on a solid foundation that Christ was better than anything that this world could offer them. What are they going to lose? Nothing compared to what they're going to gain. Right? Christ is the good life. Christ is the good life. Whatever America tries to sell you, whatever commercials try to sell you as the good life, it's not better than Jesus. Christ is the good life. And that's, that's basically the, the foundational truth which helped them in their time of crisis decision-making to make the decision, we will stand. We will stand. They were like the Apostle Paul when he said concerning all the stuff that he had gained in his life. In Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He's enough. He's life. And we saw that over and over in the book of Hebrews, right? Over and over again, the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince his readers, look, man, don't abandon the faith. Man, don't walk away. Christ is better. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through a lot. You've got to have fortitude. You need to have fortitude. And so to help you have it, let me tell you once again how Christ is better, how Christ is life. The whole book of Hebrews is about fortitude. But just warn you, fortitude is going to get you in some trouble. You know why? Because Satan hates it. He hates fortitude. And he will retaliate. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you stand, I will knock you down. And so when the defiant three are, are brought into Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a conniption, right? He's throwing his weight around, and he says to them, he's got the gall to say to them because he's so full of arrogance and pride. He says, what God will rescue you from my hand? As in, there's nothing or no one, no God bigger than me. I'm 90 feet tall. To which they reply, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. He will be the one who delivers us out of your hand. And if he doesn't, O oh, king, 
we still are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you, that you have set up. Do you see it? Do you see it? Man, it's just like Joni Erickson taught us. Their God's a lot bigger than the God of the world. They're not intimidated by a 90-foot statue when their God created the universe. <laughs> Our God is quite capable, capable of rescuing us from your tiny little hand-carved God, thank you very much. Even if he doesn't, this is the part that just blows my mind, and even if he doesn't, it's not like an arrogance, right? They're going, man, we, we know he can. We know he can. But it's up to him to decide if he wants to. Either way, we're good. Because even if he doesn't, even if we die in your furnace, right, we would rather die than betray our Lord because he's better than life. He's, he is the resurrection. He is the life. Even, even death cannot separate us from, from him. Nothing can separate us from him. All the riches in Babylon are not worth one single day away from his presence. Give us him. Give us him. They held the things of this, this world very loosely in their hands. Because Christ was their greatest treasure to which they clung. Foundation two. Second foundation I want you to see is salvation is sure. Salvation is sure. Fortitude is, is founded on the solid assurance of our salvation in Christ. It's our salvation that says, ah, okay, I'm saved, I am secure. Therefore, fortitude. Our salvation doesn't free us from pains and the traumas of life. Anybody who tells you that is not reading the scriptures. At least not yet, right? That's coming, but not yet. It, it gives us the assurance that one day we will be free from it all. But not yet. And so as long as the world has fallen and as long as we're still in it, there, there is going to be Nebuchadnezzars in your life. You're going to meet them. You're going to meet them along the way. And, and, and they don't have to be people of a huge position and title. Right? Nebuchadnezzars are simply those people whose main interest in life is to make a big deal about themselves. And they see your job as to help them accomplish that. Nebuchadnezzars are everywhere, man. You got them in your family. They're in your workplace. You'll even find them in church. These are ingrown souls. When you're, when you're around them, they make you feel obligation rather than joy. And when these Nebuchadnezzars in the world don't get what they want, they will throw you in their furnace, their punishment, their cancel culture, whatever it is, they will punish you, right? And, and so if, 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 you're, if you're a little intimidated by that, then you end up basically trying to please them. 
right? But you don't have to. You don't have to conform to them. You know why? Because you are a child of the living God, right? You are loved. You are accepted by the only king that matters. There, there is only one Lord in your life, and Nebuchadnezzar is not him, right? Or the Nebuchadnezzar, all the Nebuchadnezzars out there are, are not him, nor is the Nebuchadnezzar that some of us have within us, for that matter. And so these three Hebrew exiles, they don't need acceptance. They don't need the approval of this man of power. He has no power over them. They refuse to give it to him, which is what you have to do to the Nebuchadnezzars in your life. Nebuchadnezzars want to have power over you. And, and it's up to you to say no. No, because of who I am in Christ, you, have, you don't have power over me. You can throw me in your furnace all you want. Nebuchadnezzars don't get their way. And a lot of people are going to get hurt. That's just the way they, they work. So here, here you got this intimidated or this infuriated king, and he orders the furnace to be turned up seven times, right? Even his, his own guards are destroyed in the blast. Because anybody around the Nebuchadnezzars ends up getting hurt. And so in the furnace, the exiles go. Verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast in three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, <laughs> this is true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four, four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They fell into the fire bound. Now they're walking around unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. <laughs> I love it. Man, we have all spent time in the furnaces of the world, haven't we? That, that, that furnace, it represents a lot of things to us. It's the furnace of affliction. It's the furnace of rejection. It's the furnace of paying the price for holding to your convictions. It's the furnace of being different because you're a follower of Jesus. It's a furnace of intimidation. It's a furnace of heartache. It's a furnace of loss. It's a furnace of oppression. It's a furnace of injustice. It's a furnace of being canceled. It's a furnace of being abused. It's a furnace to be made to feel as though you're nothing. It's a furnace of sickness and poverty and death. But the beauty of it is we're not alone in the furnace. We're not alone in the furnace. We have Jesus who's in the furnace with us. He's in the furnace with us. He comforts, he heals, he unbinds us. He sets us free. In the furnace, he sets us free. But not only is, I, I believe this is a furnace of affliction, it's a furnace of judgment. The furnace of eternal death. The furnace of destruction. The final outcome for those who don't know Christ, uh, the final outcome of all sinners. 
But there's that fourth guy, right? There's this fourth guy who shows up. He looks like one of the sons of gods, of the gods. Maybe he's an angel. Nope. Maybe he, he's like Nebuchadnezzar said, like a son of the gods. Nope. No, he is the son of God. He is the son of the one and only God. And just like last week when we saw the Good Samaritan, this God, this son of God has stooped down to where we're at whether it was in the ditch or now it's in the furnace, and there he is again. And he is the God who has suffered the furnace of God's wrath so that the fires would not harm us. He is the one who shields us from the flames of hell. He is the one who has satisfied the wrath of God. He is the one, the son who has written us on the palms of his hands. He is the one who has extinguished the fiery darts of Satan. He is the one who has set us free from the judgment, from the furnace. He walked in the midst of the fire so that every single one of us in Christ could walk out. That's what he's done. It's our, it's our salvation. It's our salvation is sure. Verse 27, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the bigwigs, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They didn't even smell like fire. <laughs> and that's us, right? That's us in Christ. There is not even a trace of the wrath of God on us anymore. Our fortitude was forged in the furnace of the cross of Christ. And the reason that we can be courageous is because we have walked in Christ out of the furnace. Ain't nobody sticking us back in there. We can endure without backing down because of who we are and because of whose we are. Right? Our salvation has united us with Christ and he is above all. That's who we are. If nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which it can't, right? Then what do we have to fear? What do we have to fear? The, the, the very worst thing that, that can happen to us, the very worst things that can happen to us are only temporary. And if they kill us, they just put us in the presence of the one who is our, our life. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. I love it. Man, when I'm afraid, when it seems that being bold for Jesus is too costly, then I look to him. I look to the crucified who died in my place. And I say, the Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Right? He's talking to himself. I will not fear. Remind yourself who you are. I will not fear. And then remember, what can man do to me? One of my historic heroes of the faith is a guy by the name of John Knox. Besides having a really great beard, uh, he also had incredible fortitude. I love John Knox. John Knox was uh, the leader of the Reformation in Scotland. 
in England as well. He's a reformer. At the time, Mary Tudor, Mary I, uh, became the queen. Now, Mary Tudor, as a Catholic, was not a big fan of the Reformation. And so she made sure that all of Scotland's reformers were dealt with. She burnt a lot of them at the stake, earning her the nickname Bloody Mary. Right? It's not a, it's not a drink for when you're hungover. Bloody Mary. Her favorite form of execution was to publicly burn people. Reformers. One of the people she wanted to, to set ablaze was this guy, John Knox. She hated John Knox. And yet, he knew it. He knew that she was after him. And yet, he did not stop preaching the gospel. He escaped for a while back to England, but then turned around and headed right back to Scotland. Right under her nose, preaching the gospel in the churches. Knox famously prayed, give me Scotland or I die. And he was courageous in prayer. He was courageous in preaching. So much so that uh, Mary, the Queen of Scots, said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Fortitude. Third foundation. Third is uh, the mission is unfinished. Now, these things, I've kind of, you know, staggered them, stacked them, if you will, because they do build on top of one another, the three foundations, right? So they, each one is built on the one underneath it, obviously. So the, the last one is the mission is unfinished. Because of the fortitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love this. All of Babylon, a pagan nation, is going to know that the God of Israel is the one true God. All those people, right, who are bowed down before that stupid statue are going to know who the one true God is. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who said that? Nebuchadnezzar, are you kidding me? And he has sent his angel delivered his servants. What an angel. Who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. There is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Remember he said, who is going to rescue from my hand? Now he knows. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So you talk about some radical transformation in the king, right? Who had ever thought that Nebuchadnezzar would ever humble himself and change like that? Isn't that stunning? Right? He, he saw that his 90-foot self was minuscule up next to the one true God. And then he repented, because that's where repentance begins. When you see yourself in light of the glory and majesty of God. And I want to say this. If it happened then, it can happen again. You ever turn on the, the, the news today? And you look at the mess? And I don't care what side of the political fence you lean against. 
But how many look at the leadership in our nation and go, well, what do you do? There's no hope. We'll just kind of do our church thing and they'll do their thing and we'll just try to, you know, deal with that. Could you imagine that if the leadership of this nation fell to their knees and said, there is only one God, there is one true God. If it happened then, it can happen again. It's clear that, that I want to say this, it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar at this point has not been fully converted yet. <laughs> he still refers to, he still says it's an angel that showed up. He still refers to God as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't call him uh, my God. Uh, uh, he, he never claims him as his God, but God has a way of using even pagan leaders to accomplish his amazing purpose. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Remember that one. The king, by the hand of God, promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That's what that last verse says. Promoted them. Now, I want you to understand what that says, because it's very important, right? It's not a job promotion. He's not going, oh, man, you guys are awesome because you're God's God. I'm going to give you, like, a, a raise. No, it's not that kind of promotion. It's more like Nebuchadnezzar, the king, became their PR manager. It's more promoting them, right? He's basically going, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to tell everybody, you need to listen to these guys. You need to listen to these three guys because they're God. He's the real deal. All of Babylon, the province of all of Babylon, they know the one true God who saves from the fire. Listen to them. Listen to them. God just gave three Jewish boys from the back streets of Jerusalem a platform in the most pagan city imaginable. He is sovereign. Fortitude is, is the hinge that opens the door to amazing possibilities. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then, four chapters later, he said this in Matthew 28, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always till the very end of the age. So there's this assignment, right, that Jesus has given to his church. And he says, when the task is done then the end will come. I will return. But it's not like he's going, all right, so I'm going to go now and hang out in heaven, and when you guys get that done, uh, one of the angels will let me know, and then I'll come back. It's not the way it worked, right? He says that here's your job assignment, and I am with you. In other words, right, he's not up there waiting for us to get it done. He's going, let's go do this. Let's go, how about, we get to partner with Christ 
in his incredible strategy, his incredible plot to take over the world. <laughs> Jesus is with us when we are with the unconverted. That doesn't mean you don't need fortitude. It just means now you have a reason to have it. Now you have a reason to press on. Again, William Carey, seven years. Six years in, five years in, you've buried your wife, you've buried three children, and you go, I know, I know. He is with me. We are, we are shocked. Now, this, this in these last days seems to be uh, a waning reality. We are shocked by people like Mossy and Ma Cecilia uh, when they take the gospel to you know, where they're, they've taken it. And, and, and we just hear that and we go, oh my goodness, such a risk. But it, it's come to the point that, that it's almost as shocking to hear that Christians in America have taken the gospel next door. Our mission in our own backyard has become very difficult plowing. And I think a lot of Christians are becoming weary. A lot of us are. Christians are growing distrustful of their neighbors. We're, we're beginning to form tribal identities. We're withdrawing from the world's pain. We are holding more loyalty to some vision of America than we are the kingdom of God. We've got to stay vigilant. We cannot lose heart. We cannot stray. All things are possible. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. The Father is sovereign. The Spirit is active. The mission will be accomplished. Fortitude. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's fortitude. Right? This is a great time to be alive. This is a great time to do church. All these people are like going, oh man, it's so terrible, so terrible, so difficult these days to be the church. And I'm going, man, this is awesome. This is awesome. Because for once, we're not dependent on our programs and, and, and our personalities and our celebrities. For once, we're finally able to go, if God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. We're so dependent upon him. Come Lord Jesus. Fortitude. Fortitude. Set your resolve. Why should we show fortitude when it comes to taking Christ to the nations? We should do it out of obedient love to Christ. We should do it because hell is real. We should do it because worship doesn't exist in every people group yet. We should do it because God is glorified when we do. We, we should do it because it revives our faith and it gives us joy. We should do it because people are lost and hopeless without Christ. We should do it because Satan hates missions. We should do it because we want to be participants in this moment in Revelation chapter 7 that's going to happen. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
all the tribes, peoples, languages. They're all there. Same group of people that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get. But these are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they clothed, they're clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hand. They're crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fall on their faces before the throne, and they worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's going to happen. And we get to participate. Fortitude. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, being a part of this, this thing, this, this huge, beautiful, glorious thing called the kingdom of God. And Father, it's so easy to lose sight of who we are, to lose sight of whose we are, and to lose sight of everything that we are in Christ, that you are our life, that you have saved us by your grace. It's so easy to look at the wind and the waves and begin to sink. It's so easy to watch the news today and look at everything that's happening and feel discouragement and just wonder if we're ever going to win this thing. God, give us fortitude. Give us fortitude. Fortitude that is built on the confidence that Christ is better than life. He is our life. Fortitude that is built on the confidence that we are saved, that heaven is our home. What can man do to us? Fortitude that Christ has risen and that he's coming again and in between he is with us on this mission. May all those things be built up together to make us a people of fortitude. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.